0: I want to follow up for a minute on uh, some of the things that John said uh, just to help you understand some of the process that we're going to be going through in the next few weeks. Um, The temptation when we start seeing graphs and charts like that is to immediately go into man solution mode. and, And so we want to start thinking of fixes. How are we going to fix this? What are we going to do? And have a reactionary process to it. If if our reactionary process takes us to our knees and makes us start praying first, that's a great thing. But in many cases, our temptation is to try and come up with man's solutions. Um, Our process here at New Hope has always been to go to God first and say, "What do you want us to do?" So when we started with forty people with the first service in 2007, um, and immediately it grew quickly. By the time we hit 2008, we decided, "Boy, we better go to two services pretty quick." Um, so we went to God and said, what do you want us to do? And then came the Saturday night service because the growth continued. That's the same mode we're in right now. Here's what we're going to do over the next few weeks. Um, over the next three to four five weeks, you're going to hear this information fairly repetitively in a more concise form because uh, we know for sure there's about 800 people that call New Hope their church who attend here on a regular basis. But not everybody attends every weekend, Uh, We have what you would call a rotational congregation. So there's people who come four out of five Sundays. There's people that come five out of five, but there's some that come one out of five. And we want to make sure that everybody hears this information because in about five weeks, what we're going to do is we're going to call the church to 40 days of prayer. We're going to ask the entire New Hope body to spend 40 days together praying about what God's plan is. And uh, we're going to use for a guide during that period of time a book called The Circle Maker. Mark Batterson is a pastor in Washington, D.C., and he wrote this book about a year and a half ago or so called The Circle Maker, and and Mark went through a very similar thing that we're going through here. They started with a church of just a handful of people, and now they have nine campuses around Washington, D.C. God exploded their church into thousands because they really determined that God's plan for them in their setting was that they would ring all of Washington, D.C. with Bible-teaching churches. And that's what God's done there. And this book that they put out is a representation of that. So we're going to make that book available to the whole church in about four weeks, five weeks or so. But between now and then, we're going to continue to share this information about what God's doing so that we can really have some focused prayer together. Now, Speaking of that, I want to pray with you before we step back into the book of Ephesians. So um, would you do that with me? And let's just ask that God would be our guide as we study. Father, I thank you for the the work that you're doing among us, and you are so good. You're good whether we're growing or not. You're, You're good whether things are going our way or not. You're always good. Father, we especially thank you for just demonstrating your power here and showing us that you want to bless what we're doing. Father, I thank you for drawing people to yourself. I thank you for those who are in our church that have become followers of Jesus in the last year and last two years just because of hearing your word and responding to it. I thank you for my brothers and sisters who have walked with you for years that are growing in their faith and they're increasing in their knowledge and their understanding of who you are. God, I thank you for those children downstairs that that many boys and girls are hearing your word every single week and that you're using it to expand your kingdom. So regardless of what's happening in the world around us or in society, we still see evidence of you advancing your kingdom and we thank you for it. Father, as we look at your word right now and especially in this book of Ephesians, I ask that you would give us independently the ability to see how you want to speak to our life and how you want to encourage us God, we ask that you would do this in Jesus' mighty name, amen. Um, Before I teach, I wanted to recognize Rick and Sharon Bruce. I'm glad that you guys are here. Would you mind standing up? Rick and Sharon are just back from Thailand. Glad that you're here. If you don't know that, uh, Rick and Sharon are two of our missionaries that we support, and they're home for a couple months, and Sharon is um, great with child. And, and uh, the baby's due in August, and so they're going to be here during that period of time from now till then. If you get a chance to say hi to them, do that. Really grateful for the work that God's doing through you guys over there in Thailand. Well, if you have your Bibles, open up to Ephesians chapter 6. We've been working through the book of Ephesians, and we know that Paul is in chains when he's writing this. He's literally in a Roman prison, and he's looking at Roman guards that are surrounding him. So he's got this visual image right in front of him of what it looks like to see a a Roman soldier, and he begins to translate that through the work of the Holy Spirit in his life. He begins writing about what it means to be a warrior for Christ, and he talks about putting on the full armor of God. And we saw this in Ephesians 6, verse 13. I just want to remind you what we saw two weeks ago. He says, Therefore, because of all these things that you know about your walk, He says, therefore, take up the full armor of God so that you're going to be able to resist because of this megas battle that you're in the midst of. You've got to have some armor on. Well, when we pick up verse 16 this morning in chapter 6, he's continuing on. When he says, in addition to, in verse 16, he's a continuing of that thought. So go with me to verse 16. That's where we're going to start this morning. In addition to all, taking up the shield of faith with which you will be able to extinguish all the flaming arrows of the evil one and take the helmet of salvation and the sword of the spirit which is the word of god now we've got these first three pieces of armor that we've looked at over the last 2 weeks so we got the breastplate and the shoes and the belt of truth and so he's looking at these soldiers and he's recognizing these guys put these pieces of armor on for long distance battle They put on the shoes before they go into battle. They put on the belt before they go into battle. They put on the breastplate, and they never go into battle without wearing those. So they're wearing them all the time, even if they're sent from Europe up to northern Germany. They've got these kind of equipment on. It's for long-distance travel. But the three pieces that we're going to look at this morning, this is the final three pieces, the shield, the helmet, and the sword, they weren't always put on. They were just kept at their side. They didn't want to wear their helmet all the way from Rome up to France or from Rome up to Germany, so they would carry it under their arm. And the the same was true with the sword. It was kept ready, ready to be put on at a moment's notice. That's why he uses the verb here, taking up. You're going to have it with you, but you're going to carry it along. So we would think that way in the same way about the shield of faith when we look at it. So let's think the way that Paul thought when he was talking about a shield because he says, be ready to take up this shield of faith. Every Roman soldier was given a government-issue shield, and they had a couple different types of shield, but it was because the weapons that came against them were more powerful than just their breastplate could hold off. The weapons that came against them were more powerful than just their feet could protect them from. They had to have these shields. Now, every soldier received a, a shield that was about two feet wide, circular, And it was a small one, and if they were right-handed, it would be strapped to their left arm with two leather straps. And if they were left-handed, the opposite was true. It would be strapped to their right forearm so that when blows came against them, they could knock it away and blow off the defender that's coming towards them. But the second shield is what Paul is referring to when he says the shield of faith. He's talking about the shield Thurios. That's the very word that he uses, and there's a reason that I believe that he uses it. You see the word on the screen, therios. It was a very large shield, two and a half feet wide, four and a half feet tall. This was like a small door, and it was concave in its shape. It was designed to protect the entire body. Now, as a matter of fact, it's remarkable, but archaeologists found this photo from the first century, and, and I have this for you to see on the screen. <laughs> Some of you got that. The others will catch on in a minute. Okay, so this is just a representation of what the shields looked like. In the first century, this is what a Roman soldier would carry. And it's so large that he could literally get down behind it. So this wasn't something that they would lift up to ward off a defender. It's something that they used for protection, like a door, to get behind. That's the imagery that he has in his mind. These shields that were issued to soldiers were always issued to soldiers on the front line, those who were doing the most intense battle. And when the Roman soldiers came together, they formed an immovable wall, and in some cases, a movable wall, because the shields could be set side by side by side by side. Sometimes the Romans stretched them out as far as a mile wide. Now the next row of soldiers that came behind them also had shields and they would take theirs and put it over their head. So they would create a door over their top and a door in their front and literally they could conquer the world and they did. They moved against Europe, they moved against Asia, they moved against Africa because of these shields and their trained warriors. And the archers stood behind this wall of shields and they would launch their arrows because they were completely protected by this wall of metal. Now, something significant to understand about this shield because Paul uses this imagery. These shields were constructed of a wood core, but on the cover, they had an oil-rubbed leather and a very, very thick covering of leather. And then it was bound in place by leather straps. Every legion had its own design, and you see a legion's design on these particular shields, but every legion had its own design. But however, they were always constructed with the leather bonding and the wood core and the metal straps that held it together. I wanted you to have that image in your mind as Paul begins to talk about the shield and how it's used. Now let's talk about the faith that he's referring to because we understand this is symbology, and he says we've got this shield, and it's the shield of the faith, which means just our basic trust in God. It's the faith that you have if you're a believer in Jesus Christ, which was so basic to you that when you realized who Jesus was, it seized you and you latched on to it and you understood, I've got faith in Christ. I don't know anything else, but I know that Jesus is my Savior and he will save me and forgive me of my sins. That's the really, really basic faith. So just to make sure we're on the same page, I just want to give you three points of the substance of basic Christian faith. This is what Paul is thinking as he writes this. Number one, we believe that God exists and that He rewards those who seek Him. That's right out of Scripture. That's, that's your God. Let me show you from a Hebrews 11.6. It says this, For he who comes to God must believe that He is, meaning you believe that He exists, and that He is a rewarder of those who seek Him. That's number one of the most basic things that we believe. Number two, we place our total trust in Jesus as the crucified, buried, risen, and ascended Savior, and one day coming again. Right, church? Yes, absolutely. And here's the third thing. We recognize and we obey the Bible as His infallible and authoritative Word. Those are the basics of the faith. And so we've got the substance of Christianity. Everybody understands we've got this basic faith. Paul knew this. We know this today, that every single person lives by faith. Even an atheist lives by faith, even if they wouldn't want to admit it. Every single person exists by faith. let, Let me expand on that for you. You and I go to restaurants. We go to restaurants expecting that when we walk into a dining room, what we see in the cleanliness of the dining room is represented by the cleanliness in the kitchen, right? But we don't walk into the kitchen and inspect it. We go by faith that the owner of that restaurant has kept it as clean in the kitchen as it is in the dining room. We also go by faith that the wait staff in that restaurant haven't done something with our food between the stove and our table. Okay, you, you tracking with me? Okay, we, we go by faith when we sit down in a seat on an airplane or when we sit down in a ship or in an automobile. We go by faith that the engineers that have been hired by those companies to build those pieces of equipment have done things according to a certain standard. And those, those standards have been honored. See, the fact is, faith makes life as you know it in 2013 possible. Every one of us live by some degree of faith. So if we translated that over to faith in God, we would say faith in God is immeasurably more significant. So read this quote that's on the screen because I want you to ponder it for just a moment. Faith is only as reliable as the trustworthiness of its object. As you ponder that statement for just a minute, think in terms of faith in God. I'm saying it's immeasurably more significant. It's more important than everyday faith in which we live because if our faith is only as reliable as the trustworthiness of the source, we'd have to say our Christian faith is powerful and it's effective because of the object. Jesus Christ is the object of our faith and he is infinitely powerful, amen? And Jesus Christ is absolutely dependable, right? So we would say that our faith is as reliable as the trustworthiness of its object. Jesus is the object. And so therefore, this shield of faith that we lean into and sometimes we have to hide behind is trustworthy because of the source of our faith. He is the focus of our our reliability. We can rely in Him. And our Christian faith never fails because of the one in whom that faith is placed. We lean into God and we lean into His capacity, not our own capacity, So when we come up against Satan, this shield is very, very important because we're told that this shield is a shield of God's capacity. Here's why. Because Satan is about to shoot flaming missiles at you, Paul says, and you've got to have a shield that's capable of extinguishing those missiles when they come at you. Look closely at verse 16. If you've got your Bible open, it says, you will be able to extinguish the flaming missiles of the evil one. Now, notice, let's start at the very end of that sentence, the evil one. He hasn't talked about Satan in a couple sentences so far. So he's bringing it full circle back around, and he's reminding us, we're not talking about wrong philosophies. We're not talking about some abstract thought. We're talking about a real person. As a matter of fact, he uses the word poneros, which is the root word for pornography. He's talking about things that are vile and wicked and wretched These are the things that he's pointing to. He's saying this evil one, this personality is the one that's shooting the missiles against you because our battle is not against flesh and blood. It's against this evil force and his horde of demons that fight with him. This is the whole theme of Ephesians chapter 6. So there's this ancient warfare concept going on when he talks about flaming missiles. And here's the imagery that it's in his mind. These Roman soldiers that have him in chains, he sees them day in and day out. He's obviously being marched from barracks to barracks, and he knows the Roman way of warfare. When he sees the arrows, he begins to translate that over to thinking about the evil one shooting arrows at us. Here's how the Romans use their arrows. And it's interesting, he didn't just say arrows, but he said flaming arrows. Here's why. Every Roman soldier that was part of a particular legion, if they belonged to the archer corps, and especially to the flaming archer corps, they were given specific arrows with a wood shaft by which they were to take the tip of the arrow the night before battle and begin wrapping small pieces of cloth around the tip of the arrow, around the metal point. After which they had finished that, they were to dip it in a vat of hot pitch, preferably pine pitch. And as it was soft, it would soak into the fabric of the cloth and they would set it aside to dry. The next day, when they went into battle, there was always someone with a torch waiting to light their arrows. And as they drew back their bow and they lit their arrows and they let them fly, there was something remarkable about a flaming arrow at that point. Because pine pitch begins to crackle and pop when it's lit. And when the pitch from the arrow hit the target, the arrow didn't just pierce the armor, it didn't just pierce the shield. When it hit, it exploded, and the pine pitch went in many directions. And it would catch things on fire, the grass that they're standing on. And it would cause a flame for them to have to stand in. It would also cause damage to the men standing nearby them. See, it would cause damage to the gear and the people around them. And these flaming arrows will cause the same damage that Satan, when he launches them at you, it's not just about you. He's trying to destroy things around you as well. That's why Paul's using this image of a flaming missile. And we understand our most reliable protection against the flaming missile is the shield of faith because Paul's using this Thoros shield for this image. He says, your defense against the flaming missile is this huge shield that you can get behind because it's anchored in who God is. Your faith in the reliability of God, his nature and his character. So a question for you this morning, and I imagine every one of you can answer yes. If you're a believer in Jesus Christ, has a flaming missile from Satan, ever hit you? Have you ever felt the attack of the evil one? And many times it comes in this one particular form, almost always consistently. It comes in the form of temptation. And, And it's a temptation that has a very specific directive. He continually is shooting toward us, and it's his first and his most favorite explosive missiles. I believe all of the other missiles are lit from this one, and it's called the missile of doubt. A temptation to doubt God. The the temptation to cause you to not trust God. Let me expand on that. Every single temptation that comes from Satan, directly or indirectly, is a temptation to doubt God's provision or distrust his faithfulness. And so what he's attempting to do is drive a wedge between you and your Savior, Jesus Christ. Between the saved and the Savior. That's his real goal. He tempted Jesus to distrust God. Let me give you this example. His very first temptation when he came to Jesus, you can read about this in Matthew chapter four. When he came to Jesus, we know that Jesus had fasted 40 days and nights, gone without food. Satan shows up on the scene. What's the first thing he tempts him with? He says, I know that you're powerful enough to turn these stones into warm bread. Doesn't that sound good to you, Jesus? Wouldn't you like some warm bread right now? How did Jesus respond? It is written, Man shall not live by bread alone, but by every word that proceeds out of the mouth of God. He had an immediate response for him. Satan's temptation was to get Jesus to distrust God's provision that God would provide for him. His next temptation, the same thing, was a temptation to distrust God's protection. So he takes Jesus up on a very high pinnacle, we're told. He takes him up on top of the temple, and he says, throw yourself off the temple. And before you hit the ground, according to what Scripture writes, the angels will catch you up and bear you under their wings. Jesus' response back to him was, it is also written that Jesus should not be tempted because he says, tempt not the Lord your God. So his response is continually the same thing. It is written, it is written, it is written. So, Satan doesn't work with that one. He doesn't work with testing God's provision. He doesn't work with testing God's protection. Then he goes after God's plan. So he takes Jesus to a very, very high mountaintop, according to Matthew chapter 4. And Satan says to Jesus, I'll Tell you what, if you'll bow down and worship me, I will give you the kingdoms of the entire earth. And Jesus' response to him again was, It is written that man shall worship the Lord God and worship him only. That's his response. So Satan's angle, get us to distrust God's protection, God's provision, God's plan. That's the way that he always comes. And it comes, and it doesn't matter your age, and it doesn't matter your stage. If he's willing to tempt the Son of God, is he willing to tempt you? And will he bring those missiles towards you? He's got lots and lots of arrows in his arsenal. Here's a few that may have hit you. Anger, envy, despair, fear. He knows your particularly weak spots. He may hit your financial spot. He may hit you in your health spot. Maybe he's hit you in self-esteem. Maybe that arrow just struck a blow in the spattering of it went to people around you as well because it was a flaming missile. And it just causes you to never achieve what God has told you you can achieve. There's one that has a specially poisonous tip to it. It's the one of pride. Pride just causes us to be totally independent from God and thinking that we're self-achievers and and makes us abandon God. See, he's very successful in getting us to doubt God because doubting God is to disbelieve God. Here's what Scripture says in 1 John 5.10. The one who does not believe God has made him a liar. Now, that's a really interesting verse, and here's why. Jesus said that Satan is the father of lies, Scripture says that God cannot lie. So what Satan is trying to get us to do is to believe that God who cannot lie has lied to you. And the things that he said he will do, he won't do. You see how clever he is. He's always shooting for this angle. So what Paul is saying, we can't make a liar out of God. He's our anchor. He's our firm shield. He's the one who's in front of us. And we understand that all sin results from a failure to act in faith in who God is. So here's what faith really is. Faith then is this shield that God is who he says he is. And when you get behind it and it's a protection for you, you can yell out from behind that shield, my God will do what he said he will do. I can depend upon him. God is who he says he is. That's that faith shield. So there's only one way to extinguish Satan's flaming missiles, and that is this, to believe God, to take up the shield of faith. Let me remind you of a warrior who had to use a shield in life and death struggles. Before King David was a king, he was Warrior David. And before he was Warrior David, he was Shepherd David. And Shepherd David and Warrior David knew what it was to have to use a shield to save his life. This is what he said about your God. He said this in Psalm 1830, The word of the Lord is tried. He is a shield to all who take refuge in him. Now, this is a guy who actually had to use the shield. Now, I think as a dad, he did a really good job with his son because I want you to see what King Solomon wrote. King Solomon, David's son, said this in Proverbs 30, verse 5, He is a shield to those who take refuge in him. I think the dad did a good job of building into his son? Passing on the faith. Solomon understood. He's a shield. That's your God. Unfortunately, this is what I find. Many people lack the want to, and they don't mind moving the shield aside. And when the arrow starts coming, they just open up and say, that arrow looks pretty seductive, and it scores a direct hit. That flaming missile of temptation sometimes drives in really, really, really deep. See, if the flaming missiles looked like flaming missiles, we'd know what to look for. But sometimes they come in such a seductive way, we don't know that's what they are. And sometimes they come as though they've been fired out of a silencer. And that silencer causes them to arrive without us even knowing that they were coming. And they do so much damage that it really requires vigilance and it requires wisdom on your part. Here's why. Lucifer is very, very, very patient. And he's very, very old. And he's very, very intelligent. He's been around a long time. He's seen humanity. He knows the way we operate. So his MO is always the same. Observe how long he waited until the United States was ready in 2013 For him to play the trump card of the redefinition of marriage in our country he waited a long long time trying to challenge who god is and what god says he does this consistently throughout time this is his pattern this is his mo he raises doubts as to the existence of god he raises doubts regarding the judgment of the world he takes shots at the difficulties in scripture my faith is always strengthened by what i see and what I experience. I don't know, maybe it's the same thing for you. So I, I never have my faith stagger at any of the declarations of God's grace or any of the declarations of God's mercy because I see it in your life and you see it in my life. We see what God is doing in each other's lives. So My faith never staggers at the declaration of God's creative power. All I have to do is step outside on a warm June night and look at the sky and see the stars and I know there's a creator God. My faith never staggers at those things. Here's where faith staggers. When our adversary observes us trusting in God instead of doubting God, that's when he slides in and he begins to whisper and he reminds us
1: of the comforts you will sacrifice. When when you move to Thailand as a missionary, you're going to have to leave all of your family behind. Don't
0: do it. That's the way Satan works. He, he comes to us and he, he reminds us of the reproaches that we're going to incur if we stay, take a stand for Jesus on the campus, on our high school, or our junior high, or our college. And if we take a firm stand, he says,
1: think about the things people are going to say about you. You don't want to go there.
0: He reminds you of the losses that you'll sustain. He reminds you of the overwhelming difficulties you might encounter if you take a stand for Jesus. Jesus. That's when he moves in, when he sees you beginning to trust God instead of doubting God. Why does he do that? It's an effort to shake you in your resolution in order to throw you off from the purposes by which God claimed you for his own. It's the same method he used to prevent the children of Israel from entering the promised land. Think of this. The Jews are rescued from Pharaoh by the mighty arm of God. They're brought out of Egypt. God has said, that's your promised land. I want you to go and take it. God takes them right to the threshold of it and they're ready to enter the land and Satan creeps into the camp and tells them you can't go there there's giants in the land that land was never intended for you they'll crush you so what did they do they distrusted God and they abandoned God's plan and God punished them for it let's move forward into verse 17 because we just got through faith one well, now we got to look at this helmet of salvation and it says in verse 17a, Now, and take the helmet of salvation. I understand that Paul is writing to the church. So he's writing to believers. He's not talking about first-time faith experience. He's talking about people who are in the battle, and they're, they're ready to pick up their helmet. They're already believers. They just need to put this helmet on, reminding them of a couple things. This is the fifth piece of armor. Now, in the Roman world, the helmet was worn for a very specific reason, because there were individuals who were coming against you with swords, and usually Roman soldiers had two swords. They had the makara, you're going to hear about in just a minute. And they also had a, this big one called the romphia. It's spelled R-O-M-P-I-H-A. Uh, no, phi. There's no letter phi. R-O-M-P-H-I-A. Okay, romphia. Say that, say that word with me. Romphia. It's just fun to say. Now, this is what it looked like. This is a broad sword that's four feet long. It was a double-handled sword It was always given to the Calvary men, the men who rode on horses. And here was their objective. To ride through the front lines and begin swinging it back and forth, trying to decapitate the enemy. This is the word that Paul uses here when he talks about the helmet of salvation because of the rumphaya that we come up against. Here's the double-edged sword that Satan swings against you. Doubt and discouragement. Doubt and and discouragement. He constantly swings these. He tries to point to our failures. He tries to point to our sin. He tries to point to your unresolved complications in your life.
1: You'll never get over that.
0: You can't possibly recover. You might as well just give up. Here's an example for you from the Bible. Satan attacked Elijah, one of the greatest prophets of God, in the same way. Elijah on Mount Carmel has a great victory for God. You can read about that in the Scriptures in the book of 2 Kings. But Mount Carmel was an experience for Elijah, which was a huge experience in which he's victorious. But we read about him a couple chapters later, and we find he's running for his life in the desert. Why? Because Queen Jezebel and King Ahab came up against him and said, By nightfall, we're going to kill you, and we're going to throw your body to the dogs in the street. So Elijah turns, runs tail, heads to the desert, falls underneath a broom tree, and says, Just kill me, God. I'm such a failure. Now this is the same guy that less than 24 hours earlier had been victorious for God and yet he's attacked with discouragement and doubt. He's tempting individuals to give up when they can't see results of their faith. And that was Elijah's case. He was giving up. He couldn't see results of God in his life. Even though he saw it right in front of his face, he was filled with discouragement and doubt and said, just kill me. I'm such a failure. I'm no better than my fathers before me. Look at what Paul wrote to the Galatians in the Galatian church, Galatians 6, 9. Let us not lose heart in doing good. Why did he say that to them? Because they were losing heart. They were discouraged. Satan had come against them. Well, let me remind you this morning of who your God is and what he does for you. Because Isaiah, the same one who ran away when he was afraid and collapsed underneath the broom tree, he also years later wrote this in Isaiah chapter 40, verse 29. Your God, the Lord, gives strength to the weary, and to him who lacks might he will increase power. Those who wait for the Lord will gain new strength. I think Isaiah is thinking about that moment back when he was underneath the broom tree when he needed strength from God and he was discouraged and full of doubt was God even acted in his life. I feel like Winston Churchill this morning, never give up, never surrender, never give up, never surrender. He had to say that over and over during the course of World War II just to encourage the people of Britain that they could defeat the Germans. Never give up, never surrender because there's no language here about us walking away. There's no language in this passage about us retreating. Rather, all the focus here is about fighting and commitment and focused living. That's why Scripture calls you a fighter. It calls you a soldier. It calls you a warrior. It calls you an overcomer. If you were here during the study of the book of Revelation, you, you might remember this phrase, hupernikao. That's the Greek word for overcomer. It's the phrase by which the company Nike took their name. The word nakao, Nike, it means overcomer. You put the word hooper in front of it, hooper nakao, it means super overcomer. So you're super warriors in God's eyes. You're the super overcomers. Not because you wear Nike shoes, but because you belong to Jesus Christ. So our salvation, this helmet of salvation that we put on, is because of our hope of heaven. The hope that we have in Jesus Christ. Not hope like, I hope the paper boy delivers my paper tomorrow. But in the Greek language, when hope is used in the Bible, it's talking about something that's sure and certain that just has not occurred yet. This hope is spoken of in 1 Peter 1. It says this, Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, who according to His great mercy has caused us to be born again to a living hope. That's what we have. That's why you can put on that helmet confidently. Here's the last part. It comes from the last part of verse 17. 17b, and the sword of the Spirit. Again, it's something that you're picking up, and he says it is the Word of God. Now, this is where the little sword comes into play. This is the little six or eight-inch knife that Peter pulled out. We talked about last week, Peter's facing a Roman legion, and the legion comes to arrest Jesus, and Peter pulls out this little six-inch blade and says, come on, I got my Boy Scout knife. I'll take you on. That's the the knife that's issued to every soldier. It was a common government issue. It's something that they strapped to their belt. And here's when they used it when they couldn't pull back on their bow anymore, when they couldn't throw a spear, when they couldn't swing the big Rumphaya sword, they had this little Makara sword. That meant that the enemy was right up in your face. You ever had the enemy up in your face? This is when we're told we're supposed to pull out the sword of the Spirit, which is the Word of God. Now, in context, we understand this is a spiritual weapon. And what he's referring to is something that's going to be used in our struggle against our spiritual enemies. So he says its origin is of the Spirit, it comes from the Spirit of God. He's called the Spirit of Truth. The Holy Spirit is your truth teacher. He's the one that makes Scripture come alive for you. If what you're hearing this morning resonates within you and you feel your chest pumping because these words are making sense to you, it's because the Holy Spirit is working in your life right now. He's your resident truth teacher. And the emphasis here is on how we use this sword, this Word of God, because the weapon that you wield is not made with human hands. It's not forged in human fires. It's an ancient weapon. Look with me on the screen. It comes from 2 Corinthians 10:4, and we're told this about our weapons, for the weapons of our warfare are not of the flesh, but divinely powerful for the destruction of fortresses. This phrase divinely powerful in the Greek language means mighty before God. So this weapon that you wield when the enemy is up in your face is of ancient origin. It is divinely powerful. It is for a megas battle that you find yourself in the midst of and it is mighty before God. So Paul goes on explicitly in verse 17 to say, which is the word of God? There's a couple things I want to close with this morning, what Scripture says about itself when you wield this weapon, when you pull out the word of God. Look with me up on the screen because I want you to see, first of all, Scripture says the Bible declares itself that God is the author of the Bible. 2 Timothy 3.16, all Scripture is inspired by God. Here's one that goes a little bit further than that, 2 Peter 1.20. Know this, first of all, that no prophecy of Scripture is a matter of one's own interpretation. For no prophecy was ever made by an act of human will, but men moved by the Holy Spirit spoke from God. Do you know that the Bible that you hold in your hand is inerrant? It's infallible. It contains no errors whatsoever. It's flawless. It's faultless. It is without blemish. Look at what King David wrote about God's Word. He says this in Psalm 19.7, The law of the Lord is perfect. The testimony of the Lord is sure. The precepts of the Lord are right. The commandments of the Lord is pure. As God's own Word, it could not be otherwise, right? As God's own Word, it could not be otherwise, Right? As God's own word, it could not be otherwise, right? Because it's perfect, it's sure, it's right, it's pure, because it's of God. If it wasn't those things, it couldn't be His word. Here's the next part. The Bible is effective. When it is used accurately, things happen. I want you to see this one on the screen. Isaiah 55:11. Just skip forward with me once one there we go up on the screen. It says this, so that my word which goes forth from my mouth it shall not return to me empty without accomplishing what I desire and without succeeding in the manner for which I sent it. And here's the last one for this authority of God's word. Let's back up one verse on that one on the screen. Go to Revelation 22:18. Revelation 22:18 says this, the Bible is complete. I testify to everyone who hears the words of the prophecy of this book. If anyone adds to them, God shall add to him the plagues which are written in this book. If you go on to read that, you understand that God has a special punishment reserved for those who say there's something more than the Bible. That means when Mormonism arrived on the scene in the 1800s and Joseph Smith began to tell people that he had another revelation from Jesus Christ, according to God's word, what he was presenting was heresy, and that makes him a liar. When the Jehovah's Witnesses arrived on the scene in the 1800s and began to say, no, you can actually work your way to God. You can earn your salvation. According to what God says in His Word, and His Word is authoritative and sure and pure and perfect and right, there is no other way other than what God said in His Word. That's the truth according to God's Word. So the Bible is effective when it's applied, and things happen. We see that when Jesus used God's Word when He said, It is written, Lucifer. It is written, Lucifer. It is written, Lucifer. So frame this in your mind as you leave this morning. Just as easily as the shield by which you hide behind is transferred from one position to another, no matter where the arrows are coming from, if you stand behind the shield of faith, it will extinguish the arrows, the flaming arrows of the evil one. Just as easily as you put the helmet on, the helmet of salvation, to remind you that you can't be discouraged because God has saved you. You are redeemed in him, no matter what Satan has said to you about you not accomplishing things just as easily as those two things are true in every single attack. Every time Lucifer comes against you, one word of Scripture will suffice. The same thing that Jesus said. It is written. It is
1: written. It is written. So when you hear, He won't forgive you. You won't be able to get beyond your past. Don't bother. All those things that happen to you, God doesn't care. You risk too much. When you hear those things, behind your shield of faith, extinguishing those arrows, you raise up to say, my God said, my God said, my God said, and he is reliable, and he is true, and he gave everything for me, so I can't risk too much because he gave me his son, and he held nothing back.
0: So you lean into the shield of God. You put on the helmet of salvation, which is the security of your faith, and you declare the word of God true in your life. In your notes this morning, I wrote a prayer for you. Just take it with you when you leave today, and it answers the question, how do we get this armor? How do we give, ask God to give us this armor? Because we all need it. Where does it come from? Well, when you get a chance, read through that. But I am going to send you out with one verse this morning, a reminder from your God. Joshua 1.9. It says this, Have I not commanded you? Be strong and courageous. Do not be frightened and do not be dismayed. For the Lord your God is with you wherever you go. 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 The Lord your God is with you. Let's pray, church. Father, not knowing what territory we're going to even be walking into this afternoon, let alone six months from now, um, we really need you with us. And thank you for this reminder that no matter how heated the battle is or how many missiles are shooting over our head, we stand firm. And when we need to, we duck behind the shield that shield that we have faith in you, that you are competent and capable and reliable and you can be depended dependent upon. Father, thank you for the security of our salvation and thank you for your word, which we know to be true because you cannot lie. Thank you, Father, for the truths of this because I pray for my brothers and sisters in Christ right now. That these men and women, these students, the children in our church, as they take on this week ahead of them, make them bold for you, Father. That they would walk forward in power and strength because of Jesus Christ and what he did for us. We claim this in our life. We know it to be true. It's in Jesus' name we declare this. And God's people said, Amen.